be conscious that the reading you've just heard uh, is quite a hard reading to listen to. I was greatly encouraged by Jen's words just a few minutes ago. Uh, the, the, the purpose of handing uh, Samuel over to God is so fitting for our passage this morning. It feels like this is uh, a passage in season, but I'm conscious for those of you who are uh, visiting amongst us here for the service today that this is it's going to be a particularly difficult passage to listen to, uh, and I apologise for that. We're in a, a long series through Matthew's chapter 8, 9 and 10, and this, I think, uh, is a passage particularly uh, for this day, for Samuel, for the Labodas as they plan to raise him, and for all of us here. If you find it an uncomfortable passage, let me assure you, you won't be alone in that. This is a passage that will uh, divide to uh, the soul and marrow for all of us. But it will be a passage that I think is particularly acute for some people here. And I make no apologies for that. God's word is his means of doing his work. Let's pray for him to be at work amongst us as we come to this passage. Our Father, you have promised that you will work through your word. And sometimes we find your word very difficult to read. Uh, We resist its words. We struggle to believe them. Sometimes we don't want to believe them. And so please, our Father, be at work amongst us. Help us in our unbelief to believe that you are good. And these words are best for us and best for our families. We pray it for your name's sake. Amen. Well, it is a wonderful day today, isn't it? We had that, the privilege of being away with uh, the Labodas on holiday for a, a few days just a couple of weeks ago, and I got to spend a good amount of time tickling Samuel. He has a dirty laugh, but it's a great thing, isn't it, when a little one uh, laughs. It's a joy to welcome him into the church family. We love having John and Jen with us. And it's appropriate as we dedicate him to God today that it happens on this day, as we come into this passage, which in God's timing, as we've been going through Matthew 8 through 10, we fall on these words on this day. It's appropriate because this is a passage that will ask John and Jen to think carefully. What do you want for Samuel? What do you really want for him? Here at the beginning of what we pray is a long life. What do you want him to aim for? And what John and Jen need to be asking themselves about Sammy, we should be asking ourselves whether you've got children to raise or whether you just have family. What do we want for ourselves? And it's a really pointed question. Because on the whole, I think what you and I will tend to choose is comfortable and easy lives. If you are mapping out the next... 20, 30, 40 years of your life, what do you hope is in them? We choose uh, comfort, prosperity, uh, long life, uh, lots of friends, old age, and if we have to pass away at all, we hope it'll be in our beds, pain-free. Wouldn't we? But the good news of the kingdom is is not that Jesus offers you that life now. Oh no. 
very far from it. What Jesus wants for us is not a comfortable life, but lives that are worthy of him. To stand up and to speak out for him. And that is not safe and it is not comfortable. In other words, John, Jen, you can want Sammy to have an easy life or you can want him to be a Christian, but you can't do both. Because being a Christian means walking worthily of Christ. And that is not easy. Let me just show you that walking worthily is the theme for us this morning. We begin back in last week's passage, verse 11. I just looked down at verse 11 with me. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. Uh, the disciples are being sent to the worthy people, the people who will follow Jesus. And that idea is picked up again and again in our passage. I, I wonder if you uh, spotted it as Louise read for us. Verse 37, bottom of the page. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What a wonderful thing it was to hear Jen giving Samuel back to God. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you see? Three times. Inescapably, Jesus says, you'll not be worthy of me unless you do these things. And so to be a Christian is to be a worthy of Jesus person. That is not easy believism. That is not cheap grace. This is what the Christian life looks like from beginning to end. It is a whole life lived for Jesus. It means here that Jesus comes before every other relationship. So you can aim for the easy life or you can aim for a Christian life, but you can't do both. And Jesus here homes in on the most difficult context for living as a Christian. He comes into our families. You remember from last week that Jesus sends his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. And he says, if the people won't receive you, if they're not worthy of me, then just leave. Shake the dust off your feet, go to the next place. You'll find the harvest is plentiful. But here, you cannot walk away. You can't just shake the dust off your feet and leave your family. So it is the family where it is going to be most tempting for us to sit down and shut up. To keep our heads down. To look for the easy life. But it is precisely here where Jesus demands that we keep speaking up and standing out. If you're here and you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know that this is the cost of following Jesus. This is what it's going to look like to be a Christian. Jesus comes first. And if you're here with a Christian friend, know that this is what they're trying to live out. And if you're a Christian here this morning, this is just a gentle reminder of what you signed up for. What Jesus calls us here to do is is really tough. There's no escaping it. And so the question is, how are we going to be standing up and speaking out people for Jesus? Jesus gives us three truths that I think he intends to motivate us to live for him. They are our new love our new life, 
and our new destination. Let's look at those together, shall we? The first then, your new love, Jesus. Verse 37 is uh, where we're looking for this. Now back in verse 11, we just read verse 11, we've seen that Jesus tells his disciples to find a worthy person. And he unpacks that for us in verse 13. If the home is deserving, that is worthy, let your peace rest on it, that is the peace from God. And the key here is verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake off the dust of your feet. To be a worthy person, to be a deserving person, is to be a listen to the words of the apostles person. That is, first and foremost, a worthy person is someone who listens to the message about Jesus, that the king of the kingdom has come, that the doors are wide open for us into his new creation if we put our trust in him, that all our sins can be forgiven, as Andy has been explaining already in our service, that all of that is true, And a Christian is someone who accepts that message. That's the first thing. That is the the fundamental thing about being a worthy person. Someone who listens to the message about Jesus and accepts it. And I don't think there's much controversial there for us if we're regular church-going people. We know that. But here is the kicker from our passage. It is not a sufficient qualification for being worthy. Or perhaps I should put it this way round. Uh, Believing the message about Jesus is a sufficient thing, but it will never be by itself. Because the person who truly receives the message of Jesus will also display these things in our passage this morning. And the first one there is in verse 37. Take a look at it with me. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or to put it positively, to be worthy of Jesus is to make him number one. Is to make him more important than everybody else. Now, John, Jen, you have to love Jesus more than Sammy. That's the the upshot here. And so if the day comes when when Samuel's growing up and and he's resisting the gospel, he doesn't want to go to church and he's he's hostile to what you believe, the temptation will be to not make a big deal of it. It'll be to keep your head down. It'll be to say, look, I'll go and pray in my room, but I won't pray with my kids because it's just too much of a hassle. And Jesus says, no, for me to be number one means that it's going to have an impact on your relationship with your children. Jesus must so capture our hearts that we love him above everything else. That doesn't mean we love him instead of everything else. It doesn't mean that we don't love our children, don't love our parents, don't love our friends and neighbours. It means that we love Jesus first. If being a Christian is being a, a worthy of Jesus person, then that means being a person who loves Jesus above everything else. And I'm conscious that it may be that for some of us here this morning, that idea is alien. It may be the sticking point that means that you struggle to become a Christian. That you love someone and you cannot see how to to love them less. And I'm not saying love them less, I'm saying love Jesus more. I'll be honest with you, when, when I first read these words in the Bible, I'd already become a Christian and I cried. 
as a grown man because I love my parents and I struggled to comprehend how these words could be possible. My parents had done so much for me that they brought me into the world. I existed because of my parents. But if I love my parents above Jesus, I will put their desires ahead of his. And because my parents are not church-going people and they don't believe in this Jesus, I'll hide my faith around them. I've been guilty of that, I'll be honest. It's much easier to keep your head down and not talk about Jesus with people who aren't Christians than it is to speak up and to stand out. I'll just fall in line like a good boy should. And my parents will perish. How can I really be loving my parents to know this truth and not make it known to them? And notice, you see, the call isn't to love Jesus instead of everybody else, but rather to love them properly by loving Jesus first. If I put my my parents first, I'll not say anything about eternal life. But if I put Jesus first, I'll love my parents enough to tell them the gospel. Rather than desiring an easy life for myself, I'll desire an eternal life for them. But the question may still remain, how can I do this? I see that I'm supposed to do it, I see that Jesus says I'm to do it, but how am I supposed to do it? Let me give you two, uh, two helpful ways, I think, to do that. The first is this. Think about who Jesus is. He is the infinitely powerful, perfectly good God. A God who stepped into the world that was in rebellion against him, took on our human nature so that we could get to know God, lived our life, suffered the death that we deserve for our rebellion on our behalf. And rose again. He taught wonderfully. He looked at rebels, 9 verse 36, and he didn't hate them. He loved them. He had compassion on them. He came into the world to save them, to save us. He saw us in our rebellion and he loved us anyway. Loved us enough to die for us. See, when you look at Jesus, when you really stop and look at his character, what do you see? You see all the qualities that you enjoy in your friends and in the people that you love most uh, taken to their perfection. You find integrity and love and gentleness and wisdom and compassion. And you see these things not in the, the, the mixed way that you find in other people. You find them in their perfect state in Jesus. In other words, how am I going to love Jesus more than my parents? The answer is I'm going to look at Jesus and I'm going to see that he is worthy of my love more than my parents. That's the first thing. Jesus is beautiful. Look at him. But there's more, isn't there? Because we then think about what Jesus has achieved. It's true, my parents gave birth to me and raised me, so I have a lot of debt to my parents. I love them dearly. But Jesus came into a world in rebellion, a world that's heading for the fires of eternal hell, and saved us. Changed our future, not because we deserve it, but because his love rested upon us. Rested on us so that where we could not act, he in his infinite power 
and infinite love came into the world and acted on our behalf, changed our future from hell to glory to the perfection of joy unlimited forever at the most extraordinary turnaround. So you look at Jesus as he is, the most beautiful person who's ever lived, and you look at what he's achieved, the most extraordinary turnaround there has ever been in history, and I look at my parents and I say, look, I, I love you, but you're not Jesus. Not even close. But let's go further. So my parents, my family, my brothers are in rebellion against this beautiful Jesus. They're not allies, spiritually speaking. We, we saw last week, didn't we? Wolves and sheep. And so because Jesus is worthy, and because I do love my parents, I have to make him known to them, don't I? How can I claim to love my parents when they need Jesus more than anything else? And perhaps that's you as well this morning. Loving Jesus means loving our families enough to speak up and stand out. Loving Jesus drives us to do what is best for our relatives, even if they hate it. Do you see? Speaking up and standing out for Jesus is going to divide households. But if we don't do it, we cannot claim to love the people that God has given us in our families. Walking worthily of Jesus means more than agreeing to the gospel in our heads. It means receiving it in such a way that Jesus becomes the object of our affections so that we love him more than anything else. Let me ask you this morning, how is your love for Jesus? Do you see him as infinitely worthy of all of your affections? That's the first point. Secondly, your new life, to be like Jesus. And the logic here, I think, is, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? At loving Jesus, at loving the one who has every positive quality, who is all goodness, is full of love and compassion. Every quality that we, we, we rejoice in, loving that Jesus means we're going to want to be like that Jesus, to manifest the same qualities See, being a Christian is not just assenting to truth in our heads. It is adoring a person and wanting to be like that person. To identify Jesus with Jesus in every way. Consider verse 24. I look down at it with me. The student is not above his teacher nor the servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. See what Jesus is saying? You guys should be like me. Be like the teacher you're learning from. So verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus wants us to follow him. To follow in his footsteps, to, to be like him, to, to put our foot where his foot has previously trod, to go where he goes. And so if he goes to the cross, if he will die for the sake of sinners who hate him, then we need to be willing to go the same way. I need to be willing to, to crucify my comfort and my ease and step out and speak to my parents 
you can help me with that. Actually, my parents are coming over to, from Canada to visit in about three weeks' time, and it would be great to help have some help in evangelising them. So please do take every opportunity to talk about Jesus with them. Um, but I have to speak up, don't I? Because Jesus, what Jesus has done is for them too, if they'll accept it. I've got to be willing to go the whole hog, just as Jesus did for me. We should be like Jesus. And actually this idea runs right through this whole chapter. You'll have noticed it last week in passing, I think. Look at verse 32. Back over the page, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do you see how what we do and what Jesus does goes together? You want Jesus to, to own up to God at the day of judgment that you are his, that he totally identifies with you, that he wants you in his eternal kingdom, then you've got to at least say to your friends and your family, look, I'm with Jesus. That's the connection here. If you won't even put your hands up and say, look, mum, dad, I love Jesus, is he going to say, I love you? After all I've done for you, and you won't even say. See, we should be like Jesus. We're to confess with our lips the way Jesus confesses with his lips. Are you living like Jesus? If you are. And I get that we do this failingly. I get that we make mistakes. I get that we chicken out sometimes. But but if you're somebody who confesses Christ to others, then you're walking worthily. And he will own you for eternity. But if you're ashamed of Jesus... If you're ashamed to die to sin, to to live a a transformed life, if you're not willing to speak for him, then let me make this plain. You are not worthy of him. And he will not own you on the day of judgment. These are Jesus' words, not my words. You will not be worthy of me. And what does he say to the disciples? When you come across somebody who's not worthy, shake off the dust of your feet and leave them. We've got to be clear. Being a Christian is more than saying, I believe in Jesus. It is, I believe in Jesus such that I will follow him. That is what believing in him means on a day-to-day basis. And and let's be clear, verse 38, that the language of taking up your cross is not metaphorical here. At least not for many Christians. Uh, He sent us out as sheep among wolves, we saw that last week, and it's this very point that he goes on to in verses 34 to 36. Just look down at them with me. And I want to look closely at this because this is really, really important. In verse 34, uh, Jesus takes on our desire for an easy life. And what does he say? I have not come to bring peace to the earth. We want a peaceful life, don't we? We want an easy life. We want everything to be uh, nicely ordered and we can go through our days without any trouble at all. He hasn't come to bring peace on the earth. And why is it not on the earth? Because the earth is in rebellion against God. And when we change sides, we get peace with God. Our peace is in eternity. Our peace is in the new creation. Our peace is with Jesus Christ and his heavenly Father by the Spirit. But it means that we've changed teams here. We've left the team of wolves. We've pulled on a new kit. A kit that makes us no longer hostile to God but hostile to the people who are hostile to God. We're traitors. We're spies of a new kingdom. 
And there is no peace for people like that. I've not come to bring peace, he says, but a sword. And here is the, the rub. This is not a fair fight either. Because when we came to God, we put down our weapons of war and we embraced Christ. And so who's holding the sword here? When Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword, what is the sword doing? The sword is not in our hands. The sword is in the hands of the wolves. When we follow Christ, when we truly follow him, we need to know that those around us who are carrying weapons of war against our God have them trained on us. The more we identify with Jesus, the more we live for Jesus and like Jesus, the more the sword will be pointed at us. By joining Jesus, you have laid down your weapons, but your family haven't. Your friends haven't. And everybody who is at war with God is at war with his people by extension. Jesus illustrates this in the most painful way possible. He takes us into our homes. And so we've seen in verse 24 that we are to live like Jesus, to suffer like Jesus. If the head of the house is called Beelzebul, that is the chief of demons, how much more so his household? Verse verse 22, you'll be hated by everyone even the members of your own home. So when we get to verse 35 here, it shouldn't be a surprise at all. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Here he's quoting from Micah uh, chapter 7. We had that read by Stu earlier. Uh, And in that reading, uh, Micah begins chapter 7 by saying, I'm miserable. This world is jolly hard to live in. So all the, all the godly have left the land, and what I'm left with is the people of God, the people of Israel, turning and biting and devouring each other. Taking every opportunity to get one up on each other. The, the politicians are corrupted. Everyone's taking advantage of everyone else. And my word, it's, it's not hard to believe in that today, is it? I just follow Twitter. Anything on Twitter, frankly. Uh, follow the news on the BBC website. It's not hard to believe that people are biting and devouring each other in politics, and in the media, and in every sphere of life. And Micah says, this is what it's like. People turning on each other, devouring their parents. And so in verse 7, the next verse from this, he said, I've just got to wait for God to come. I've got to wait for the return of Christ, because that's the only deliverance here. And Jesus picks this language up and says, this is what it will be like for the Christian." Some of you will have parents or children who hate you for changing sides. They will devour you with the sword. And I take it it's not a physical sword for us here. It's rare for a Christian in this country to be murdered by a member of their family. But my word, if you look around the world, it is still very common in some parts of the world. It has always been like this for Jesus' people. And I want to press home how serious this is. Notice what's happening here. The man is against his father, the daughter against her mother. It it is a complete undoing of the family. It would have been very clear in the time when Jesus is speaking this that the parents had absolute authority over their children. Their children were meant to do what their parents said for their own good. There was an order to society. The family has been the building block for society from the beginning. And what does Jesus say here? The family unit will be turned upside down torn apart. The very foundation of society will be ripped in two as kids turn on their parents, murder them in their beds,
for changing their loyalty to Jesus. The hatred of the gospel is so much in some people that they will actually murder members of their family for turning to Christ. That is a reality. There's a guy in, my, in a previous church of mine uh, from Pakistan. He became a Christian and he's not welcome in Pakistan anymore. He hasn't seen his family for decades now. Because uh, in his culture, turning to Christ is a, a capital offence. It's not a pretty picture, friends. This is the pointy end of the stick. This is where it's going to hurt most. And so let me speak to those of you who've grown up in a Christian household. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes, you've known Christian parents, you have Christian brothers and sisters. There are no immediate members of your family who aren't Christians. Let me say, uh, your situation is unusual and you should be extremely thankful for that situation. Extremely thankful. Because this sucks. And many of us in this room, one way or another, have experienced this. People we love dearly who are not following Christ. People in our our families who hate what we stand for. The rest of the world you can leave outside, can't you? Come home, lock the door, close the curtains and be safe from the world. You can shake the dust off your feet, you can move towns, you can move countries, but you can't leave your family behind. Whenever you come home, the family are there. And for some people here, family is warfare. We're hated for being Christians. Some of us, it's, it's not our immediate nuclear family where we live, but as we go home for Christmas, as we spend time with our relatives, we'll, we'll see it very clearly. It'll be very painful. Some of us have an unbelieving spouse who, who is tolerant of our church going and, and is quite happy with us being nice people but as soon as you start talking about Jesus or or trying to make decisions for your life that are pro-Jesus well that's where the hostility comes and so the temptation is going to be to sit down shut up and just blend in keep it private to not allow the gospel to shape everything that you are to die for Jesus with Jesus Others of you, I know, have have disappointed your parents. Some of you have made the choice to be single when there are so many lovely unbelievers out there because you know that it would displease Jesus. And now your your mum is saying, I was so looking forward to grandkids. Others will find that their children turn against the church, hate their priorities, hate uh, all this Jesus nonsense hate listening to the Bible, uh, will turn against you in family worship times and so on. I'm praying that it's not so. I've been burdened by this this week very much. But Jesus teaches us to expect it. For some of us, that'll be our reality. And in every one of these situations, the temptation to be a private Christian, to to clam up, to not love Jesus sufficiently, to love our friends sacrificially will be just too much oh our family our friends our kids they'll love it if we swear less and we we drink less and we're gentler and we're nicer people in general everyone loves that but when you make a choice about your job 
or, or your money or where you live or how you live or who you marry or any number of other things, people will notice and there will be hostility, says Jesus. You should expect it. It's going to be uncomfortable. There will be a sword. Will we speak up and stand out? Some friends of mine, Rob and Laura, Laura was a relatively recent convert to Christ. Rob and Laura had been going out for some time and Rob went to see Laura's dad and said, I'd like to marry your daughter. And he said, what are you going to do with your life? And Rob said, I'm going to go to Africa and tell people about Jesus. And his, her dad went, not having my daughter's hand. And so they waited. And a year later, they went back and said, I'd like to marry Laura. And at that point, get out of it. Not interested. Two years, I'd like to marry Laura. And eventually, Rob and Laura had to make a decision because her father, her family, was so hostile to her marrying a Christian, and particularly one who had made sacrificial choices about what he was going to do with his life, that they would never allow her to marry someone like Rob. And so they got married anyway, without the blessing of her family. And it caused enormous division. It's really hard. I find this really hard with my unbelieving family. And my family live on another continent, so it's not like it's a daily thing in my face. So I can only imagine how hard it is for many of us here who spend much more time with our our families and I trust that as a church family we'll be praying this week for each other. Particularly if this isn't your experience. Particularly if your, your family life is full of Christians. Please do pray for those of us who have unbelieving relatives. But here is the thing, brothers and sisters. If we do not speak, if we're not willing to die to self, if we don't follow on the way of the cross, then we're not worthy of Jesus. And here's the thing. If we're not worthy of Jesus, it's not because we love our families too much. It's really because we love ourselves. It's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? But if we would rather have a quiet life than see our parents, siblings, cousins, children saved by Jesus, then it's not them we love, it's ourselves. And that's the truth, isn't it? You will love somebody more than your family. It will either be yourself and your comfort, or it will be Jesus. If we love Jesus, he will drive us to be like him, risking everything that our families might come to know him. Loving Jesus means living like Jesus, which is going to be hard, but it's such good news for our families, isn't it? The cost is high, but the harvest is plentiful, and we need to speak up. If we're to be worthy of Jesus, we need to love Jesus enough to live like Jesus for the sake of our families. The only way they will be saved is if we live and speak for Christ. This is not an easy path, brothers and sisters. It is the crossway that Jesus walked before us. It is not glory, it is pain. So what is it that will enable us to look at our whole life and sacrifice it for the sake of other people to live like Jesus, to stand up, to speak out and invite the sword in our own families.
just our third point, and briefly, your new destination, the kingdom of Jesus. That's verse 39. And here is really the question that's been running through the whole of chapters 8 through 10. Is the kingdom of Jesus worth it? That's the question. If we have to be worthy of Jesus, is it worth it? Is it worth staking our eternity on the resurrection of Jesus? That's after all what's at stake, isn't it? Verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will leave also acknowledge before my Father in heaven on the day that Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. In other words, when Jesus divides the sheep and the goats, when Jesus decides who's in heaven, who's in hell, is it worth it? In other words, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, will he own us? And and should we care? Is the kingdom worth it? And that's the point being raised in verse 39. Take a look at it with me. Whoever finds their life here and now will lose it because we're all going to die and we will all lose our life. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. If you find your life here and now, if comfort and ease and everything that the world offers is your uh, obsession now, you can have it now and you will lose it. 100% of the people in this room will be dead in 100 years. You will not escape death. And comfort and ease here, the path of least resistance, is not worth it. If you take that path, then you will do anything to please anybody else and you will not stand with Christ. Christianity will become something that you believe is true in your head but never impacts your life on the ground day by day. That is what will happen. Real Christian faith is lived day by day. But if you sacrifice those things, if you're prepared to count the cost, if you're prepared to see that this life is so short and eternity so long, You'll be willing to give up everything now for Jesus. Anything he asks, follow him wherever he goes. Know that it will look like dying every day and living forever. You'll face the sword, socially, certainly, politically, maybe. But if you do that, you will find life, real, everlasting life. That's what chapters 8 through 9 were about We haven't time to go through the whole thing, but please do go and read chapters 8 and 9 again. Remind yourselves what Jesus' kingdom looks like. If the last couple of weeks have been about the cost of following Jesus, the mission and the ministry of the church, don't forget the good news of the kingdom. It is staggeringly good news. Jesus walked around the ancient Middle East, emptying hospitals, Closing leper colonies, forgiving wretched sinners, raising the dead. He pulled back the curtains on the eternal kingdom and he said, Look, this is unlike anything you have ever imagined. But brothers and sisters, you have to imagine. Engage your imaginations as you read chapters 8 and 9. A world in which every day is better than the last, where the first day there is better than the best day here where every relationship is perfect, where there is no Harvey Weinstein, there are no military coups, there's no more suffering or crying or mourning anymore, where Jesus himself comes to you as you walk through the gates and wipes the last of your tears away, never to cry again, where every tribe and tongue and nation is represented, but there are no borders anymore, there are no language barriers, there is no racism, there is no Brexit, there are no tribalism of any kind... 
where all the longings of our heart find the thing they have been longing for in Christ. And where the days stretch on for a hundred thousand billion years. I know it's hard to imagine. It's increasingly hard in these troubled times to imagine days like those. But I think we do have to use our imaginations, brothers and sisters. We have to engage our minds. We have to see what a brilliant salvation Jesus has won for us because we will not give up everything here if we can't see what's coming down the pike. We just won't keep going if we can't keep our eyes on the glory of our Saviour and the glory of his salvation. If we only see the sword, we are going to duck and cover and our families will be lost. But if we lift our eyes to the beauty of Jesus, and he is beautiful, and the wonder of the new creation, which is going to stretch on forever, we will be willing to die now for the sake of others, especially our families. And so I wonder as we close, what will you be praying for this Christmas? Let me pray. Our Father, these are hard words. Difficult to take in, even more difficult to do. But you are (coughs) wonderful. And you have called us to follow Christ who is glorious into his new creation. Please lay on our hearts a a vision for living like Jesus. a, A vision of the future. A great appreciation and love for Jesus so that we will stand up and speak out. Uh, so that others might be saved. Lord, you've told us the harvest is plentiful. Uh, Please show us the harvest field in our families. And please bring many to know and love you, we pray. Amen.